Welcome to episode number 102 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are reviewing, actually not a dust explosion, but uh, reviewing the Beirut port explosion. And to do that, we have on Dr. Suzanne Smith and Dr. Russell Ogle from Exponents Thermal Sciences Practice. Dr. Smith and Dr. Ogle, thank you for coming back on the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're really excited to have both of you back on. We had Susie on in episode 78 of the podcast, talking about a grain dust explosion in a milling facility, and we gave a case study there. We had Russ on back in episode 57 of the podcast, talking about dust explosion risk assessments. In this episode, we're talking about the recent port explosion in Beirut and uh, Beirut, Lebanon. And some of the things that uh, can be told from that, from looking at the videos that we have and just determining what happened on that day. Both Russell and Suzanne have doctoral degrees, mechanical engineering for Suzanne and chemical engineering for Russell. And both are very involved in fire, explosion, chemical safety, incident investigations. Um, Dr. Ogle authored the textbook Dust Explosion Dynamics. He is a, a very involved and, and over 30-year career, more than 30 years in, in combustible dust and related hazards. Um, they're both very knowledgeable on this subject. On August 4th, 2020, a massive explosion took place near the port of Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, and this disaster took the lives of, of over 200 people and, and injured thousands. It was one of the, the largest explosions of its kind and could be traced back to the improper storage of over 2,500 tons of ammonium nitrate, which has been stored at the site t- since 2013. So when this incident happened and when this disaster happened, I was sharing this with with Susie and Russ before we got uh, to recording. I, I received a lot of emails, a lot of comments like we normally do about you know large-scale industrial safety and related accidents with a lot of different opinions and ideas and thoughts about what happened here. And I re- read a really good article that was published um, by Scientific America that did an interview with, with Russell and with Susie entitled How Could the Beirut Explosion Happened? And it was really a back and forth with them about their analysis of the the event and, and what happened there. And I want to get them on and talk about that just so we had something I could point to when people are asking about, well, what really happened in this explosion? Did it involve combustible dust? We'll get into that. And there were grain silos beside where where the uh, the ground zero was for the explosion. So there's, there's a lot of questions there. I just want to get Susie and Russ on to talk about that. As I mentioned in the previous episode or a few episodes ago, we are doing transcripts of these podcast interviews now, so you can get the transcript for this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 102 for this episode. So I think the best place to kind of jump in, and I'll let maybe Susie talk about this because we've talked about case studies before on the podcast, but how would you go into just investigating a large-scale fire explosion incident like this? Like where, where would you even start trying to figure this out? Yeah, so investigating any explosion, regardless of how big it is, starts off very similarly. So the the scientific method sounds really kind of elementary. You know, we've all learned that in elementary school. We use it a lot, but it's really the basis for all of our investigations, regardless of size. So as part of that, uh, once you've defined the problem, which in this case is fairly simple, we want to know what happened. The next step is gathering information. So here, right now, the information we have is all through the news media. So we have the videos posted from the various witnesses. We have some news reports of 
things that may have been stored nearby or activities that were going on. But at this point, we don't really have any way to independently verify any of that information. So I just want to start off saying, you know, our conclusions and analysis are only as good as the information that we're putting into it. So there's a little bit of uncertainty around a lot of that still. But looking at an explosion of this size, when you're going in, uh, you want to first try and understand what you're looking at. You know, what is the layout of the land? What was stored nearby? What is stored where uh, the incident may have occurred? What witness information you can get? So a lot of this can be kind of the boring part, you know, doing uh, document reviews of bills of lading and what's stored in the area. Looking at the videos is incredibly helpful to try and establish timelines and sequence of events, which I think are really the most important information we can gather from videos is what happened first, what happened second. You'd be doing a lot of interviews with first responders and facility personnel, people who knew what was going on just before the incident, as well as what had been going on in the, the time before the incident. So what had been stored in the area, what work had been done in the area, all of that. If there's any photos or videos that weren't in the news media, maybe of security videos, that type of thing, those would be useful to review as well. So that's kind of the first big part of the investigation. And that goes on throughout the investigation. It's iterative. So you're always gathering more and more information. And once you have enough information to start, you start hypothesizing about what could have happened. And um, then as following the scientific method, your goal is to refute those hypotheses. And um, I think that's a step that's often lost is, and I remember struggling with it in elementary school during science fair and trying to disprove my theories seemed backwards, but it's really the best way to move through the process in a way that avoids as much bias as possible. So for instance, if there was a hypothesis that this was a dust explosion, uh, you could try and say, well, can we prove it definitely wasn't a dust explosion? And that could knock that hypothesis off the list. So that's kind of a big framework for how we would do it. But I'm happy to go into more detail about any of those steps if you think that would be uh, worth discussing. Yeah, and I think I'm going to shelve the can we prove it wasn't a dust explosion because maybe we'll talk about that at the, the end of this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I like the, I mean, going back to the fundamentals, the scientific method, I really see it as two points, and and I'm trained in academic research, I guess, but I'm not academically trained in how to do academic research, so I may not have the exact uh, the exact line of how this is done. But I think of it as two things you want to know: the end result, what happened, and what were the initial conditions. So what was there, and that's sort of what you're talking about what was there, what was stored, what was happening at the time, and then you know getting good measurements of what happened, what was the effect. Um, we'll get into some what some of these markers might be. And then you really can start to hypothesize, okay, well, what happened to get from those starting conditions to that result um, and keep iterating on that. And what you say about trying to disprove your hypothesis is actually the critical component that makes good research at the end of the day. If you spend the whole time trying to prove your hypothesis, you're probably going to end up with your own bias in there 
Um, and you'll probably end up with an answer. <laughs> you'll end up with your hypothesis being the right answer, <laughs> but uh, probably for the wrong reason. Yeah, I think ultimately what you're trying to figure out and what you're focused on in, in an explosion investigation particularly is what was the fuel, what was the oxidizer, and what was the ignition source? And how did those three things come together in a way that resulted in this particular incident? Because there's going to be a bunch of ways they could have come together that didn't result in this incident or ways that the incident could have been prevented. You know, if we didn't take this next step, it wouldn't have happened. If we didn't take this next step, it wouldn't have happened. And so that's kind of what you're trying to piece back together. And there's all types of different analyses you can do to help you with that. I think what I find most helpful in a large event is trying to bound things. You know, while we know that the explosion breached, you know, it was, there was this type of damage, let's say severe damage X distance away from this, the epicenter. So how much fuel or what size of explosion would we need to cause that? And now you have kind of an outer bound or a minimum bound, I guess. And you can start trying to chop off the ends and get narrower and narrower as your analysis, the science, and your facts allow. Yeah, I think that's really, really critical. This is some really good background. I guess I know you've done some assessment. You made a really good point that this is not independently verified. The the, the videos, the information that we're doing these type of assessments on right now are, are not being independently verified. Obviously, I don't think you guys traveled to Lebanon, although I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> so this is really just some ideas around it. We're not saying this is the, you know, this podcast interview is not meant to be the instant investigation for this or anything, but just to get some ideas. Is there any general consensus or even from your assessment, what you've looked at so far of the sequence of events that occurred at uh, in Beirut? I think in a general sense, so looking at the videos and kind of making a little more general, a lot of what with explosion investigation, you're often trying to figure out, was it fire, then explosion, or explosion, then fire? And that can help you figure out what those fuel, ignition, and oxidizers were based on that kind of sequence of events. So from the videos that I've seen, it appears it is definitely fire, then explosion. But I, I do want to kind of bring back to this caution all the videos I've seen, we already have a really big fire. There's already a huge uh, plume of smoke. So I haven't seen any videos or information really of what happened before that. <laughs> so I, I want to make some uh, clear statements that what we do have, even from the videos, is a little bit bounded itself. But with this fire, then explosion, I think that's we at least know the large explosion at the end that did most of the damage was after a large fire. So I think that sequence of events is known. We have some information that's been um, reported in the media about the timeline of the um, ammonium nitrate storage at the port. So we have those type of sequence events. I've seen some reports regarding Ignition sources, uh, I know there was a photo that came out very quickly after the incident of workers welding a door, but we have no way of um, kind of independently verifying, is that the door at the port? Was that the day of the incident? You know, there's a lot of questions about kind of the validity of the photos, if they are really what they have been reported to be or not. And they very well may be, we just don't know. 
But so there was reports of hot work in the area. There was some reports of other hazardous materials and flammable materials being stored nearby. But I don't know if there has been a, or I certainly haven't seen yet, a consensus of kind of the ignition event. Okay, that makes sense. And unfortunately, that's almost always the, the thing that we're, we're searching for. And, and sometimes you can figure it out. But a lot of the time, especially with such a massive final explosion, there's nothing there to, to analyze anymore, unfortunately, in the kind of epicenter. So you're, you have to rely on what happened in the, the time leading up to it. Is there, from the large explosion, the final one that did the, the amount of devastation, I don't know if this has been done, but has there been any back calculation of how much fuel would be needed to cause such a large explosion and what maybe the you know the property in terms of energy release of that fuel would be i'm just trying to see if if we could maybe rule out dust explosion as being a, a uh, the main contributing factor to that large explosion just by the fact of how far away we saw windows break and those sort of damages is that something that might be possible to do and i'll let yourself or or dr ogle kind of tackle these questions for sure and if you don't mind, Susie, let me kind of just give a, a quick overview of you know some some of the thoughts I have on that. What we have learned from the news media is that there was approximately 2,700 metric tons of material that was stored in the warehouse. And um, if if you can uh, get ammonium nitrate, you know the, these um, the, the ammonium nitrate was being stored. We understand in basically what we call super sacks, so metric ton bags of material, and they were supposedly all stacked in one warehouse. So you've got essentially a unit of ammonium nitrate. And if you can get that material to um, spontaneously and suddenly uh, decompose, and, and it will do so in something that would look very much like a detonation. Okay, even though it, it may or may not be necessarily formally what we would call a detonation, but it sure looks like it. It would give you an energy yield of about 50%. And so that's about a thousand tons of TNT, which is a remarkable kind of energetic yield and, and not something that you would normally see. Now, in a typical dust explosion, if you can say such a thing, Typical dust explosions, um, you would come nowhere near one metric ton of TNT in terms of an energetic yield. It would be a very, very small fraction of a, of a ton. And, and admittedly, uh, this is a very imprecise kind of comparison because a dust explosion typically is a deflagration. It's a very different phenomenon compared to a condensed phase detonation. But Anyway, you know, if we if we try to look at this just in terms of the energetic yield, a dust explosion would be so much milder, actually, keeping in mind the devastating effects that you often see with a dust explosion. Nevertheless, what we're talking about here, what happened in Beirut, is something that is, for lack of a better phrase, several orders of magnitude worse than what you could get with a dust explosion. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. That ties into what Susie was saying about bounding things and and seeing what's possible. So looking at the there's there's a couple different markers you can look at here, and um, just the one of window breakage and the distance that is away. You kind of back calculate how much energy you'd, you'd need, and that was my thought: is that 
a, a dust deflagration just wouldn't it would be we're talking imprecise numbers but at least two maybe three orders of magnitude too small to to have that happen you know that because when you have a dust explosion you may rattle windows of the adjacent building you may even break some windows that are nearby but you're not talking <laughs> kilometers away windows breaking that's just not how rapid that a, a fuel cloud that's dispersed reacts and, and deflagrates in that case so i did want to get that out out there and and anything else to add on to that uh, russell or susie you know, the, the only other uh, damage feature that I think is very distinctive, you know, the first is uh, the window breakage. And, you know, from that, uh, it's a very imprecise kind of calculation. You're using empirical correlations, but you can relate that back to the, a, a yield of TNT. And, and that's what, you know, people have done. And you, you get on the order of a thousand tons of TNT in terms of an energetic yield. The second feature, so window damage being the first, that's in what we call the far field. In the near field, uh, we have the crater. And uh, again, the crater is a very distinctive feature that you would see almost exclusively when we talk about condensed phase, either deflagrations or detonations. Uh, and, and there's a, a monstrous crater. Um, you know, I, I forgot the, um, at one point I remembered the size of the crater, it might be something like 200 meters in diameter, which is, and you know, it requires an extraordinary amount of, of energy. And again, you get back into the ballpark of approximately a thousand tons of TNT yield. That's good to know. Are there any other markers? I mean, crater depth or crater radius, window breakage, what else might you be looking at? Just uh, this is not the podcast episode here is not to turn someone into a, a disaster or an incident investigator. Um, but it, I do find it interesting to go through the stuff, and I think the audience might as well. So, what other kind of things might you be picking up and looking at for uh, for different markers like this? You know, the third area would be structural damage. So, not uh, you know, window breakage, of course, is one form of uh, structural damage, and and that tends to be, let's say, at the outer reaches of the far field. So in that intermediate zone, you're looking for uh, structural damage. Masonry walls that have been uh, crumpled or uh, displaced, causing collapse. And those are obviously two different damage mechanisms. Uh, Generally, you need a a higher blast overpressure to cause a masonry wall to, uh, to crumple into pieces. And then farther away from the, the shock wave is weaker, but it could still cause uh, walls to uh, tilt and, and deflect, uh, leading to a collapse of the structure. In, in an accidental explosion like this, uh, where you're looking at what we would call external blast, meaning the, the blast is outside of any kind of confinement, generally the majority of your casualties will be caused by building collapse. So that, that building collapse uh, phenomenon is, is a very important marker, you know, as we you know, look at to see at the consequences of this um, explosion. So we've, we've established what kind of, if we can say kind, if we can categorize explosions like this, this might sort of be. Um, I do want to talk about the conditions that led it to being so severe. What precautions have been taken? Has this happened before? And maybe we'll come back and talk about the the kind of dust explosion questions again. Um, But Susie, I want to give you a chance. Just did we miss anything in this timeline or the ignition, possible ignition sources, or just any other relevant information at this stage that you think might be the the audience might be asking about? 
Yeah, I, I think the one thing I find interesting about explosions in general and this this one as well is it's a lot oftentimes it's a lot less about what specifically ignited it and more about why is the fuel available for an explosion. And I think uh, Russ will talk a little bit more about that later. But for example, if we look even at a smaller explosion where you have a gas leak or something, it's a lot more about why is the gas outside of its intended path and less about what specifically ignited it. And I think depending on the information investigators are able to gather about the activities immediately before this incident, we may never really know what specific sequence of events ignited the the initial fire. But we will know that this large amount of material was present. So the, I, I want to bring that up in that while the goal is, of course, to understand what is the fuel, what is the ignition source, what is the oxidizer, and how they come together, sometimes you're not going to get all of that information. And so the focus can be, especially if you're looking at preventing future incidents, can be how do we remove some of those things from, from the list? How do we make sure we don't have enough fuel to have an incident like this? Yeah, I think... Let's let's go into that a bit. I mean, obviously, this is a, a, a disastrously adverse explosion that happened. It was many orders of magnitude larger than than someone would think and hope for. Uh, so, what kind of conditions? And I, Russ had already sort of maybe hinted at a couple of these. What kind of conditions had led to it just being so large? And then on the inverse of that, and what Susie's saying, you know, what kind of precautions should be taken at these type of storage facilities? And Maybe, uh, Russell, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Ammonium nitrate uh, exhibits a number of uh, unusual properties. Uh, and it's these unusual properties that contribute to its hazard. So, you know, a couple things that sort of set this, this unfortunate accident up is that, you know, first let me just quickly say ammonium nitrate is a powerful oxidizer. So what that means is that as a chemical it can release oxygen, which will then feed some kind of combustion process. And if you, if you are to uh, mix a little bit of organic material with ammonium nitrate, um, you're basically creating an intimate mixture of fuel and oxidizer, or you could think of it crudely as fuel and oxygen. And so that intimate mixture is able to yield a much more powerful combustion process. And in fact, you can create blasting explosives by mixing uh, some fuel oil with ammonium nitrate. That's a, a very safe blasting explosive, but it also has been unfortunately used in, in some terrorist attacks as well. So what makes the ammonium nitrate a potentially more hazardous material than you might first expect uh, it, it's used as a fertilizer. It's, it's, a, it's very useful in, in that context. But it does have a shelf life. If you allow ammonium nitrate to experience temperature cycles, such as, as would be experienced uh, in Beirut, you know, looking at uh, climate data, for example, the temperature excursions you would see between winter and summer 
are also the temperature ranges in which phase transitions begin to occur, changing the crystal structure of the ammonium nitrate. And that can lead to the formation of little tiny holes in the solid, which is called porosity. And, and that porosity is a problem. Exposure to humidity is a problem for ammonium nitrate. You can increase the sensitivity of it uh, in those circumstances. So then in this, you know, a particular accident scenario, which unfortunately has happened time and again, is if you should have a stockpile of ammonium nitrate that becomes exposed to a fire, some unexpected things can happen. Number one, uh, you can melt the ammonium nitrate and form um, a molten liquid. Uh, so you can think of it as a hot oxidizer liquid. That, that's right there. That tells you if you have any experience with chemistry, this is not a good day when you have a hot molten liquid that's an oxidizer, basically looking for fuel. Any kind of organic debris, uh, this ammonium nitrate was stored in polypropylene, probably polypropylene supersacs. Polypropylene is an organic material that will act as a fuel. Any kind of organic debris, um, if any agricultural materials, grain, uh, grain dust, grain um, particles, uh, grain itself, you know, anything that is a fuel is going to be potentially really troublesome here for you because it can increase the explosion yield should the material suddenly, uh, finally initiate into a spontaneous decomposition. So, Either the the message here is large quantities of ammonium nitrate. It was aged in a bad way in the terms of temperature cycling and exposure to humidity. And then, you know, if the photographs that we've seen of the warehouse uh, are indeed accurate and portray the storage conditions of the ammonium nitrate, it was a dirty storage area. And uh, any kind of debris or dirt could be potentially organic, and that's going to contribute to the problem. And the other one I was wondering about, as you kind of mentioned, you may not know how it was stored, but if it was stored together, from my understanding, there, there are regulations and guidelines that say, basically, if you're going to store this stuff, one, don't store it all in one location, <laughs> but two, you know, store it with spacing in between. So if you do have one detonate, it has a um, spacing so it doesn't, sympathetically detonate the the next one. I don't know the regulation guidelines, but are there some sort of guidelines on that about having spacing inside these sort of storage facilities? There there are. There and you know different uh, safety standards have been developed by different bodies uh you know around the world. In the United States, we often would look to the National Fire Protection Association or NFPA. There's a document, a safety code for hazardous uh, materials called NFPA 400. It, you know, it's interesting, the threshold quantity below which you don't have to really worry about the storage of ammonium nitrate is approximately one half of a ton. So that kind of gives you the idea of if you have more than half of a ton, then you need to look at these special storage requirements. And as you said, they would include segregation, uh, separation, I should say, first segregation from other uh, fuels or, or contaminants and um, the building itself would be preferably of non-combustible construction and would be better if it had some type of fire protection system like automatic sprinklers. 
So there's any number of, of requirements depending on the quantity that you're talking about. And I guess, you know, the final thing I would say, which I, th I think you're alluding to is you don't want to be stockpiling ammonium nitrate in the middle of the city center. You want to be as far away from people as is practical for your storage facility. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, I, I had forgotten that one actually, but that's, I, that's probably the most critical. And that goes with ammonium nitrate or, you know, even large chemical facilities, anything that has a chance to have a large, and we see, unfortunately, the negative consequences of this. We've seen here in North America, we've seen it in the, in China with some really large explosions there. Yeah. So there's a whole siting issue here as well. You, you sort of mentioned, I do want to say like, so the listener right now might be thinking, well, why do we, you know, this sounds like bad stuff, but there are two major uses, at least two major uses. One is for fertilizer and two is for small explosives. It's actually an excellent material for say coal mines because you don't want something you can detonate while you're driving it in the truck to the site. <laughs> so you want to have something like ammonium nitrate that you can drive to the site safely. Then you can use that to do blasting when you need to blast over your, your rocks and you can use it as the, the material. So those are two of the uses and reasons that you'd be storing this material in the first place. I do want to go into this. This isn't the first time this happened. Maybe I, I pulled up a report from from Marsh, their JLT specialty division, called Ammonium Nitrate Explosions, Learning and Applying Lessons from the Past. And we'll include a link to this in the, the show notes as well as the interview that uh, Scientific America did with Dr. Smith and, and Dr. Ogle. But it has a list of some of the previous incidents, and maybe I'll read some of these off, but before we do that, Suzanne or, or Russell, whoever wants to, to talk about it, is this, you know, do we have a history here? Is something happened previously that's uh, that's notable with ammonium nitrate? We, we do. There's a number of, of these incidents, and generally, you know, again, the, the whole idea, as we've all discussed before, and I know you're very much an advocate for this, Chris, the whole idea of trying to identify causes for an accident, it's not to assign blame, but the idea here is to try to learn and, and make sure that we figure out how can we prevent something like this from happening again. And some of the safety standards that are codified by different groups around the world, there's a lot of uh, similarity. There's, there's not a lot of controversy about this. And if you follow those guidelines, you really can prevent these kinds of uh, disastrous explosions. And you know, some of those that you're going to probably be referring to, I can almost guarantee you that um, there are instances where the storage of ammonium nitrate, the reason why the explosion occurred is because they weren't following those simple guidelines. And, and, and that's really, I think, the most important takeaway here is that um, this is used properly and handled properly. It is a safe and stable material. Um, the problem is when you deviate from these guidelines for safety. Yeah, I would agree. And some of this Marsh document that I'm, that I'm referring to here has some bullet points on regulation, on land planning, on storage and handling. So that'd be a good reference for someone to uh, to look into in more detail, but there there has been a, a unfortunately a history around the world of ammonium nitrate explosions. So in 2019, there was a large one in China that resulted in in 80 fatalities and 640 people injured. Um, in West Texas, which was probably the most commonly known one here in North America in 2013, there's a, a large uh, ammonium nitrate depot, I believe, explosion or a place where they're storing ammonium nitrate. 
um, that, that caused fatalities and injuries. Um, in Tianjin, China, 2013, there was a, a large explosion involving 800 tons of ammonium nitrate. So about, uh, I'm going to make myself do the math, three and a half times or three and a half times less than than what happened here in, in Beirut. Um, and also in France, there was a, a large uh, explosion of 300 tons. The biggest one, I think the Beirut one might be the biggest. I think there was one other one in Germany in this century, at least, that was 4,500 tons. But it's it's happened several times. Even in the last 10 years, we've had three or four, including Beirut 5, I think, uh, large-scale ammonium nitrate explosions from very similar circumstances. And the guidelines and, and requirements that we're talking about in this episode are, are contributing factors in those explosions. Anything else on this, Susie? Are we, are we missing anything on some of this history or some of the precautions should be taken there? Anything you've seen from your, your research into this at all? No, I think Russ has pretty well covered it. And the, I think it is most interesting to me when I look at the history is looking at the various sizes of the incidents. And, you know, West Texas, which everyone is, in the U.S. at least is probably most familiar with, as you mentioned, uh, at least according to the Marsh document, is, was only 40 to 50 tons, which when you compare to the size of Beirut is just, I think it helps put the both incidents in perspective and just how massive the incident in Beirut was. Yeah, I would agree. I guess we've, I mean, we talked through the scientific method. We talked through incident investigation markers. We talked through why maybe this isn't a, you know, why it doesn't fit in the bounds of the damage and why a dust explosion doesn't fit in the bounds of the type of damage that we've seen from this incident. We talked about some of the conditions, some of the previous history here. It is worth noting that there was a grain silo right beside the epicenter. And I believe I've seen some photos where maybe the side of the grain silos blew off and the grain had spilled out. I don't know, Susie, if, have you seen any information on whether or not this grain silo was involved in, in any way, or is there any way to tell from the videos or anything that we've seen? I, I think what's notable about the photos of the grain silos is kind of the difference in damage facing the crater and the location of this warehouse and the the photo of the silos on the other side, where, you know, facing the crater you see a lot of damage. You see the grain spilled out, which is a disaster of it in its own right. But on the other side, they're not that bad. They're white. The paint isn't damaged. There's uh, damage around them. But I think what's notable here is one of the things we would be looking for in an explosion is kind of directional vectors. You know, can we use the damage we see to point back at an epicenter? And that, obviously, in Beirut, I think it's a lot more obvious. There's a crater, there's video. We can kind of use those more easily to point back to a center of the explosion. But when you don't have that kind of information in a, a smaller event, perhaps in a building, using these directional damage clues to help you find that center is a big part of our investigation. So I, I think it's interesting from that perspective, and also gives some, I think, information about how these pressure waves, they reflect, they, uh, it's not always a straight line. You know, the, these grain silos probably protected some of the structures and other items behind them 
from some of the from some of the shock from the explosion. Yeah, you can kind of see the damage on the the one side, and I there's historically there's been a couple of large incidents where we could not figure out the direction. So Bunsfield comes to mind because it was a question on my comprehensive exams <laughs> uh, for my PhD degree. But uh, the the investigators there spent a lot of time discussing whether or not flow was traveling in one direction or another, and that was determined whether or not it was deflagration or detonation, which I've seen a lot of heated debates about. Um, but that's not the, the topic of, of this discussion. But it is, these are, I hope that from this interview, folks have gotten some ideas on some of these large scale explosions what some of the things that you know really experienced investigators like yourself would be looking at and trying to figure out and how to piece it together and how to use a scientific method. So I think you know I hope it's been helpful from that that perspective. I hope it's been helpful to give someone a point to if they want to learn more about the Beirut explosion. We have a couple of resources that uh, that we mentioned that you can get at the show notes for this episode as well. Just to, to close off, is there any anything else that you want to leave? Maybe we'll start with Suzanne and then we'll we'll end with Russell, but. Anything else that you want to leave the listeners off with from this disaster, just just closing out? Sure. I think I'm repeating myself a bit, but um, I think one of the the big takeaways from an event like this that makes the news media and we see all the photos, we see the videos, and we're so hungry for information right after the incident because you want to know what happened. You want to understand it. But I think I just want to reiterate having some caution about understanding that these type of investigations, if done properly, take time. It takes time to vet the information. It takes time to analyze it. So as much as I wanted, the same as everyone else, an answer that first day of what's going on, what happened, what can I figure out, sometimes taking a step back and waiting for quality information and more information is is helpful before jumping to some conclusions. And that's part of the scientific method as well, right? You want good quality information to base your analysis on. Yeah, I would agree. Anything on your end, Russell, think, you think it's important to leave off with? You know, I think um, just one more characteristic of this particular um, explosion is that following it, the, the initial blast, there was a large plume of reddish brown material that you know it was included in the cloud that, it, that appeared above the explosion, and that reddish brown co- color is very distinctive and, and unusual. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, it is a characteristic feature of nitrogen dioxide, which is one of the decomposition products of ammonium nitrate. So I think that it it, it again kind of underscores that you know clearly. Uh, along with the explosion damage, the quantity of material, and this reddish-brown plume, we've got a good indication that it's the ammonium nitrate that was really the bad actor in this incident. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And like I said, I appreciate your time coming on. I appreciate you coming on for, for multiple times now on the, the podcast. Um, and I'm I'm pretty sure that we'll be reaching out to you again to come on in the future. So hopefully uh, we can find some time in your, your busy schedules to, to do that when we when we when uh, when that comes around. Thank you for having us, Chris. Always good to chat. <laughs> yes, sure it is. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Smith and Dr. Ogle. And uh, yeah, have a, have a great day ahead, and I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Dr. Suzanne Smith, and Dr. Russell Ogle from Exponents Thermal Sciences Practice. We've been talking about a review of the Beirut port explosion. So we talked through how a 
a company, how a group of experts, how an instant investigator like Dr. Smith and Dr. Ogle will go about tackling the challenge of understanding a, a large-scale explosion like this. Suzanne talked about the scientific method, how you really use that to establish what's there already, what happened, um, and develop hypothesis about you know what could have led to those results. And use this, she mentioned a number of scientific tools, but one of really bounding the results that came out and then you know what could lead those results as a way to sort of hack away the different possibilities and hack away the different hypotheses. So we use that in this interview to really talk about and frame the the Beirut port explosion. We talked about a number of markers, you could call them, a number of things that you could look at from an incident like this and determine, you know, what the process was that happened. So things like window breakage, things like cratering, things like damage to, to buildings. There's very set numbers and and values for, say, the pressure that it takes to crumble a masonry wall or the the force it takes to um, buckle a, a metal beam. And you can look at these things and determine how much energy was released from that explosion. We also talked about things like the cloud that's created and the color of that cloud is going to tell you what the chemical makeup of are those products. You feed that back in determining what the, the fuel is going to be for the explosion as well. So in the Port of Beirut explosion in Lebanon, this assessment has been done by by some groups. It's really pointed back to you know approximately the equivalent of a thousand tons of TNT in terms of energy being released in this incident. One possible scenario for this is the ammonium nitrate that was stored in the depot. Uh, there's about 2,700 tons or so, and usually about half of that energy can be released when you do when you you detonate material like that. So that really fits in with the the possible type and amount of fuel that would fit in for the damage that we saw in Beirut. We did spend some time talking about could a dust explosion, a dust deflagration do this in terms of the amount of energy it would release and really were, were several orders of magnitude off on what a dust deflagration could do. Even though there were adjacent silos there, it seems likely that the the uh, grain that was there was not involved in this explosion. We talked about a bunch of conditions though that did lead to this being so severe. Things like siting, having the storage depot you know, in the center of a very populated downtown area, things like temperature fluctuations and humidity, uh, having, you know, an area that has fuel already, things like organic products and stuff that's in the the storage area, and also not having storage area space. So there's there's a number of guidelines. And Russell mentioned the NFPA 400 document might have some some criteria, but there's other documents internationally as well. Uh, And all these conditions really led to building up to what was one of the, you know, the the largest explosions in recent memory that was a, a large-scale disaster here. We talked about the history of this. Unfortunately, it's not the, the first one we've seen. Uh, there's been at least four major loss-of-life disasters from, from ammonium nitrate in the last decade. And many of them have some of these very similar characteristics around siting, around storage, around proper um, use. And, and as Russell mentioned, the standards that we use in, in North America for this started to kick in at half a ton, half a metric ton of ammonium nitrate. And we're talking, you know, 2,000, 3,000 tons. So we're much above that threshold where, where you really need to take a, a look at this. And we can see the results why in this explosion. Um, then we just close off the episode talking about some of the other, you know, considerations around this. We talked about the grain silos, really were able to stop some of the damage on the backside of the silos, which probably saved a lot of damage there. It did not look like the grain was burnt, although that much grain spilling out is a hazard in itself. It will smother and, and crush anything that it lands on when you think about that much material. Uh, but it doesn't look like it was involved in a you know subsequent deflagration or anything after that. 
that really gives you a summary of the Port of Beirut explosion. Again, we mentioned a couple of articles, the Scientific America article, how could the Beirut explosion happen? Experts explained. That was the um, interview that Scientific America did with with uh, Susie and Russ. And another article by Marsh, uh, a report released by Marsh on learning and applying lessons from the past for ammonium nitrate explosion. So we'll put those in the show notes, um, links to them at dustsafetyscience.com slash 102. And as we mentioned before, we're actually doing transcripts of these episodes now in a nice PDF document that you can download there as well. You can download that, control F, and find the thing that you want to, to hear us talk about again and, and get the transcript there as well. So I want to say, as always, thank you for listening to Dust Safety Science Podcast. I want to say I appreciate everything you're doing. The industry's handling combustible dust around the world, making them safer every day. And obviously, if you're also working in other industries that aren't handling combustible dust, but uh, have these sort of you know chance for disastrous consequences, then we appreciate what you're doing there as well.